2: Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash historyhack where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash historyhack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. You have a slightly different lineup today. I'm joined by Kate, coming to us all the way from what I hope is a very sunny Gibraltar. Hi, Kate, how are you doing?
3: I'm very well. Thank you, Zach. Yeah, it was quite sunny today, um, though we have had some rain and we're due some more rain, um, but mostly sunshine.
2: I think we'll us sitting here in Blighty will take your occasional rain, but generally kind of very nice Spanish sunshine slash Gibraltarian sunshine. I should emphasize Gibraltarian. Um, Who have we got with us today? Because we are massively looking forward to this one. This one feels like it's clickbait, but actually it's really, really not. I'm excited about this.
3: Yeah, I was really excited when I saw this one come up. That's why I kind of jumped at the chance to, to co-host. So we're joined today by Richard Sugg, who did his PhD at Southampton University, a PhD in English literature. Um, and he's since written 13 books, including Mummies, Cannibals and Vampires and a Century of Ghost Stories. He's currently working on a book titled Talking Dirty, A History of Disgust. Um, and today we're here to talk about the real vampires. Yes, real vampires. So, but before we talk about reality, let's talk about the legend. Most people associate vampires with Bram Stoker's Dracula, but how far back do vampire tales really go?
4: Yeah, this surprised me. It it goes back in terms of archaeology. You have to forget written records and listen to what the archaeologists say. So 2008 in the Czech Republic, uh, skeletons were uncovered. Uh, engraved about 4,000 years old, and they've been weighted down on the head and on the chest. Uh, Other skeletons been treated as vampires or revenants will be staked through the heart. And the inference really here is that vampires are as old as fear, and in particular as old as fear of the dead and they'll be treated in this way. The head and the heart are interesting because they're typical sites of the location of the soul. And this is as much a problem as the body, as we'll see in this very strange labyrinth of terror.
3: It's really interesting. It's about kind of keeping them in the ground then basically. It's surprisingly practical a lot
4: of the time yeah. that's right it is it is keeping them in the ground it's keeping them fed. it's keeping them distracted. Um, the, the ways of prevention or assault are immensely varied and, and sometimes quite comical.
3: yeah so even even that far back it was was it kind of this thing of like you know the, where you see the vampires in the films where they're clawing their way out of the grave kind of thing was that was that the case even this far back then?
4: That was certainly what was believed. That was what was believed. And we will come to a strange vampire of New England, which could actually feed on you without leaving the grave. Uh, That's a bit generis. But on the whole, yes, they were believed to come out. And there were surprisingly compelling reasons. We'll see when we get to sleep paralysis, why you really could believe that it had got out of its grave and it was right in your bedroom, actually, at, at night.
2: This is incredible. Here we are, sort of all thinking that, um, you know, Dracula and all of that is just sort of something out of Hotel Transylvania and and novels and all the rest of it. And actually, this is a concept that has embedded itself in people's minds going back literally millennia. So I guess one of the, the questions to talk about is why? You know, why does this legend kind of embed itself? What is it about this that? that really seems to get people. Do we, do we even have equivalents? You know, so for example, you, you've written about mummies and, kind of, and, and cannibals and you could, if you wanted, perhaps draw a line between cannibals and, and zombification. So is it just the vampire notion that really embeds itself in people's imagination or is it many of these kind of things that we associate with the horror genre today? And what is it about vampires particularly that really gets under people's skin? And that pun yeah. is slightly intended.
4: The the Yeah, they do indeed. Um, no, mummies is, is a useful uh, comparison, actually. And that's because I think one big point about vampires is they allow us to play around in the zone between life and death. So they allow us a space where we, we're not dead, uh, we're not dying necessarily, but we're exploring that space, which in the end, let's face it, and we've been forced to confront this uh pretty radically in the last two years it it is the most important question in life and mummies have that slightly zombie uh slightly alive not human quality uh in the 18th century you get a couple of plays where they romp about on the London stage spectacularly and vampires similarly one of the things really took me by surprise uh in this book was that a big reason why the vampire is held to exist is because for most of history, our straight kind of switch between you're alive, you're dead, did not exist and was not recognised. And for quite good reasons, Uh, for most of history and most of the world, you could be alive, you could be dead, or you could be slightly dead. And this was a dangerous zone and time, the slightly dead uh, people in Romania in First World War would be taken to uh, their funeral in an open coffin so they could see and hear what was going on um you're not usually expecting them to come back but they can do so there's spans of time uh three days is a crucial and the most dangerous span uh particularly because the coffin will probably be open in the house uh, and you're very keen that the soul will actually leave the house and the body throw windows open you make a hole in the roof uh you cover liquid so the soul won't drop in them and get drowned etc um 40 days is crucial as well the soul apparently going on a kind of tour of all its Uh, past life until that period and then up to a year in fact is also a dangerous time and after that it's likely to be considered safe so yeah we've got these um, ways in which you you play around across the border between life and death and the vampire who is uh, as a kind of norm in vampire culture is slightly dead hopefully is going to go on and become fully dead the vampire allows you to cross that border and make it actually much more porous and much more elastic than we might think. I found when I was answering this question many times that actually it's also worth flipping it on its head in the sense of, you ask a kind of two-year-old kid nowadays what a vampire does and they'll show you their teeth, I believe my niece did, um, and make a face and they're indicating they drink blood. And really actually the question here is why are we so fascinated with vampires or people drinking blood because not many of them did not many of them did. They they simply wanted to feed uh, on anything to keep themselves alive. The third answer to this, and this is where it gets strange and difficult, and it's taken me a long time to get my head around it. The third answer is that they've caught the imagination because some of the cases are actually real ghosts coming back. Uh, and usually poltergeists, the aggravated, the noisy, the violent, the boisterous, unhappy form of ghosts. So. Those are the three broad answers that I was led to in this strange journey.
2: You've tapped into a really interesting point there where you say it's not just about the blood, that actually the original vampires were believed to sort of feed off of anything. So where does the blood fixation come from? Is this just a literary invention or is there some kind of um, connection or even a kind of cross-pollination between stories about cannibalism and and the vampire as, as a notion.
4: Yeah, the blood thing seems to take root in what I call the sort of early phase of vampotainment. Uh, so we've got running side by side the real vampires, by which I mean largely the ones people believed in. And they believed in them so badly they actually died of terror at times. Uh, and then we've got vampotainment, which obviously is very familiar to us since Polidori and onward but actually I think it began with factual accounts which were a bit thrilling for an enlightenment culture in France and Britain which was losing religion among the educated but kind of wanted something else so as religion was decaying it was a bit exciting to read about these strange magical vampire panics um, and it was in this period and these accounts uh, brought back by uh, educated European soldiers that blood-drinking did play a part. David Keyworth is a great scholar who's covered this. And people had waited too long, I suppose, for a vampire that was going to drink blood and finally get its PR act together. And they didn't really let go of it, despite the fact that you've got vegan vampires, you've got ones that are quite happy to drink milk, uh, graze on green beans in Greek fields. Uh, Blood is the thing that sticks. And I think it says something about our strange psychology, perhaps, Um, people were more likely to be drinking blood in reality at execution scaffolds in Germany in 1865 or Denmark, for that matter. But, uh, yeah, we like this idea. I suppose it's probably only got more popular with us because the world is so full of kind of dilute substances. You know, we're drinking substitute milk, um, sugarless Coca-Cola, etc. And here's the primal stuff. You know, here's a kind of strange uh, engagement with the raw stuff of life. And there are a few uh, sanguinarians in uh, America, particularly, who claim they have to drink blood and uh, they have it medically filtered and so on. Uh, they they claim particular medical symptoms and they need more blood, I think, in summer than they do in winter and so on. Um, so, yeah, it, it's not unknown.
2: Right. I really want to tap into the vegan vampire thing, though. Can, can we just... I'm sorry to jump in, Kate. Can we just explore the notion of the vegan vampire? Because I think that's just brilliant.
3: When you say vegan vampire, do you mean like as in don't drink blood or don't... Because there was a thing wasn't there in... And I didn't want to say this word, but there was a thing wasn't there in Twilight whereby they didn't drink human blood they only drank um the blood of animals so they were sort of vegetarian and i'm doing air quotes here vegan i mean is that what you mean by vegan or are we talking like actual vegan eats vegetables
4: the the best case for this really is uh in in greece uh where you you, you simply see a hole near the coffin the grave and this is almost certainly an animal uh getting down there um and You'll then find in the coffin, as they did in the 17th century case, reported by uh, Rico, the ambassador to Greece, for Britain, uh, that the vampire had been storing apples, nuts and grapes in its coffin. Uh, Now, this was probably an animal, but this is a brilliant little glimpse into a mindset where you are looking for vampires everywhere. You are expecting vampires everywhere. And hey, presto, you are finding vampires everywhere. So this one was happily vegan. again, hadn't got its PR act together by any means, and uh, was trying to enjoy a kind of vegan picnic down there, uh, undisturbed. But the Greeks would also talk about seeing vampires grazing on Greek beans in open daylight. Uh, Other cases, which again show you how you're looking for vampires, you're finding vampires. I think it was Greece again, where people claimed that um, the vampire was drinking the milk of goats uh, at night. Now, this was either um, somebody going about drinking the milk because they were starving. And I mean, people have done this with cows in Britain, or more likely it was a form of disease where the animals weren't giving milk. But this again, is very typical. Everything that goes wrong, your scapegoat of choice in vampire country is the vampire. And we're talking bad weather. We're talking deaths, disease, animal problems, crop failure, you name it. Uh, so yeah, this sounds comical to us, but they actually shot the culprit who was probably some wandering vagrant, had nothing whatsoever to do with it, uh, and killed him, cut him open, and found that he had got milk in his, I can't remember now, liver probably. Um, so it was it was all too serious at the time. Um, finally, you get to the 18th century and a few vampires start drinking blood. In, in these cases, it's often actually because other fluids are coming out of the mouth and you've got a darkish fluid coming out or fluid spurts out when you state the vampire this will do for
3: okay we've sort of, we've mentioned sort of the you know the, the legend and and the sort of vampires have been quite romanticized haven't they over the years but you mentioned earlier as well the real vampires um, tell us a bit about them who were they what did they look like what did they do I mean why were they considered to be vampires?
4: Yeah, this is a a key question. And if somebody looking like uh, Bela Lugosi or uh, Edward Pattinson starts stalking haughtily through your Serbian mud village around 1800, there's only one reason whatsoever to be frightened of him, and that's because somebody so alien uh, and affluent looking must be your uh, absentee landlord. The real vampires uh, were fat, bloated with corpse gases, as shabby and Un- unremarkable as any local peasant but beyond that and the fact that they, they kind of you know were sort of anti-stereotyped as it were these florid chubby um discolored usually blackened rather than being pale and gaunt uh figures again you've got this vampire just out, where people are expecting them they're looking for them they're finding them so you end in with a bewildering range of types. I mean, it can be a dog, a cat, uh, a hare. Um, If you burn the vampire, you're very nervous about any uh, birds or insects or snakes scurrying out of the flames, which of course they would do, uh, because the vampire can be embodied in one of these. It can go down to the level of a butterfly or a moth. Um, And one of my favourite forms of vampire staking is, is just pinning a moth to the wall. Uh, to keep the vampire in place there. A character called Sava Sivanovich um, had an airing again a few years ago in the press when he was supposed to have come back because they'd knocked his old home down, which was an old mill. Um, but Sava Sivanovich was thought to be a problem since they tried to destroy him in the 18th century because during the burning, a butterfly flew out of his mouth. And weird and kind of uh, eccentric, as though this might look, the key to it, again, is the soul, the spirit. You just need anything big enough for the vampire's soul to flit into, and that will that will suffice. So yes, anything at all. With the logic again, I suppose that old religious logic that the devil is a shapeshifter. The devil is always changing his shape, and uh, this this was what the vampire would do. Although bats, actually, disappointingly, don't turn up very much. Uh,
3: I was I was going to ask that. I was going to say, is that where the bats came? Uh, you know, the thing about the bats came from.
4: I think Stoker probably adapted you know, from the reality of the protean vampire in animal and insect shapes. I think he, he did do his research and probably made a good choice because it's kind
2: of stark, does not it? I'm loving this. I'm just absolutely loving it. It's yeah. kind of it's it's bizarre and it's quirky. Essentially, this is a massive scapegoating exercise. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Huge and, and it's it's all about othering. And, you know, just just go and pin the blame on somebody who looks a bit different and perhaps acts a little bit differently. And, you know, then supposedly that will solve all the problems. And the irony being, of course, that actually they're so concerned about this concept that it perhaps creates more problems than it's really worth, which is where I want to go next with the vampire panics, because these become a thing. You talked earlier about some people kind of scaring themselves to death over this. So what do these vampire panics actually involve?
4: So the answer to that is twofold, because firstly, you've got, of course, the question of why they think the vampire has come back. Why would a vampire be created? Um, the, the biggest kind of umbrella reason is pretty much religious. Huge one uh, in lots of places, especially Greece, was excommunication. So anybody excommunicated Uh, would be cursed by the church and their body would fail to decay. Uh, Greeks particularly did a lot of exclamations to make sure that a person had decayed and they were traumatised if they thought that the spirit was trapped in an undecayed body. So that was a big one. Um, Religious reasons were were big. Sudden death was a big one. Unnatural death, uh, murder, suicide, very, very big one. A lot of other magical reasons. Um, Again, the whole thing we said about being slightly dead, that your soul is naturally lingering around. It's actually reluctant to leave the house. uh, And sometimes you've got to encourage it to go on its way. And you meet cases of somebody at a funeral, the priest um, actually knocking the vampire on the head, uh, sorry, knocking the person on the head, telling them they are dead, reminding them they are dead, uh, which is actually perhaps not as weird as it might seem. Uh, Among the magical reasons, if a cat or a bird passed over the body or sometimes even over the roof of the house of death. Vampirism was a risk, uh, particularly an extraordinary one in a place called Ambele as the pseudonym for Evia, little island um, not that far from Athens in Greece. And these superstitions uh, or beliefs were going on well into the 20th century. A woman called Duboule was out there studying the Evians. And a bit of an irony here was that you must not leave the body alone. You must never leave a dead body alone. Un- attended and that was a particular cause of vampirism if you had the problem was that you must be round it constantly 24 hours a day you're round it in a circle you're tired by about three in the morning and they remembered the ambalians or the avians uh, to dubule a case where some poor woman um had passed a baby or a coffee cup Um, over the body and then it was instantly vampirized and it was completely irrevocable there's nothing you could do about it and just by having passed a cup of coffee the wrong way the result was that you actually had to pour boiling oil um, into the coffin and you destroyed the vampire's soul I cannot now remember the Greek word but there is a particular Greek word for doing this You destroyed its soul, and you then didn't remember it in any way. This is Greece we're talking about, but you didn't light any candles, you weren't saying prayers for it. That whole kind of, you know, Catholic boundary that you're crossing between the living and the dead, that was out. So if you think about this, you know, the degree of heresy here is beyond anything you could possibly imagine in official theology. You've destroyed the Christian soul, and you had to do it because of uh, a rogue coffee cup. Um, Why did they actually happen, these panics, the kind of, you know, medical, if you like, scientific forensics? One pretty grim one, which we'll get into, uh, it's probably not the biggest cause, but it was a real one. People simply weren't dead. They were they were not undead. They were not dead. They were buried alive. And this happened a lot. Uh, And if you were buried alive, unfortunately, as we'll see, the best thing was to stay down there and just wait it out. Uh, because if you got out, that was another problem altogether. Disease was a big, big one. And as Zach is rightly saying, spot on the scapegoating is huge. Um, basically, if you're in vampire territory, all the stuff that the witch was blamed for elsewhere, the vampire was blamed for. The good thing about it being that the vampire was already dead. So, you know, saving the lives of lots of witches here, in a sense. Um, so, yeah, disease is, is a constant problem. Uh, and vampires are used to explain that. The the weird one that's hard to get your head around, and if you can't, I don't at all blame you because before I wrote this book, I could not get my head around it, is that actually real poltergeists were coming back. Uh, and certainly the thing's easy to get your head around is that in classic vampire country, Romania, Montague Summers has a case from I think about 1920 uh, where showers of stones are being hurled at a house. I think mean, they're barricading the windows with furniture. It gets so bad, uh, and this is a classic poltergeist thing. Um, so they describe the vampire as behaving like a poltergeist, and it was at this point I started thought thinking I better find out what poltergeists actually do. No idea at that point. Um, so yeah, these are these are the main reasons um, sleep paralysis will come to. That's a very big scary one as well.
2: Can I ask about the religion element here? Seeing as you touched on it there, sure, because. Yeah in a lot of respects this feels very heretical doesn't it um, yeah, this it idea that you've, yeah. you've got yeah. this and sure you can kind of turn around and say oh well it's the devil's work but you've got this concept of sort of somebody who's fallen in some respect can we say and sure life after death that's the whole point that religion is based upon but it's very much sort of not the life after death that the church talks about you know if you are somebody who believes in purgatory you know this isn't purgatory this is something very different so when the church gets wind of all of these concepts how do they deal with this because it sort of feels quite problematic in terms of what the church is trying to preach
4: yes um There are a few cases I think I've come across in Bulgaria, a couple of British soldiers were out there in the late 19th century, where the priest would connive in what the the locals wanted. And perhaps you're somewhere fairly remote. Actually, as a priest, your powers are a bit limited, and you depend on these people for all sorts of things. But I think the biggest answer to that question, which is a key one, is that what I learned from doing this, and also from books I've done on the soul, is that for most people in most of history, there was nothing but magic actually. And they were, to me, anyway, uh, they were defiantly and quite touchingly independent of Christianity. And it it was, they were pious, they were certainly pious, but Christianity had to be useful to them. And at one level, down to the present time, I mean, I've been dealing with a poltergeist case still going on in America, where the victim of it was left, out hung, left out to dry by the catholic church I and mean, they were completely useless so mainstream
1: in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids experience the thrill of transformative encounter we'll bring more wonder to your day listen to constant wonder wherever you get your podcasts
4: stream religion isn't very good at dealing with ghosts and poltergeists Uh, but people's attitude to nature and religion was that it must work for them so you've got people in uh britain in the 19th 20th century sprinkling holy water on their potato crop uh taking the the wafer out of the church And again, putting it on their crops. And their logic is in some ways pretty good. I mean, what they're being told all the time is that this stuff is powerful. Well, if it's powerful, let's make it work for us. So, yeah, um, people lived in a kind of wonderful, defiant uh, world of their own. I think they took what was useful to them and they, they turned it and twisted it in all sorts of directions, which, yeah, they left official theologians and priests a lot of the time absolutely thunderstruck with,
0: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365 day returns.
3: Is this we've mentioned sort of certain religions and certain areas. Is this something that spreads all over the world into kind of non-Christian um, countries or, or other places? what are some of the stories about kind of the the other kind of parts of the world and what happens there in terms of vampires and and these kind of legends and or real cases
4: yeah there are all over the world really as with fairies as with witchcraft There, there are versions pretty much the entire world as far as I know I didn't get into that too much because it would have made the book uh, diffuse and also absolutely gone over my, my word count. But yes, people that, you know, the undead, the half-dead that feed on you um, in India, in the Far East, it certainly does happen uh, as well. But it does seem that Christianity uh, really fostered this, actually, uh, the versions we know. Y- you get it in Russia, you get it in New England, very strange one we'll come to, uh, you get it in most of Europe. Versions of the revenant um, seem to die out of, of Britain, but they they did come about quite a lot in the medieval period. So yeah, Greece, of course, is an intensely Christian country, and actually, Greece, where where Byron set his, or sorry, Byron's *Polidori* in the end set the Greek uh, vampire tale, uh, is as much a vampire heartland as anywhere you know, as much as Transylvania or, or Northern Europe.
2: Can we? kind of gain some sense uh, of how people try and deal with vampires, I, one of the questions I wanted to ask was, where does the stake through the heart thing come from? And you've kind of touched on that already, but we, we have the, the stake through the heart concept. We have garlic cloves. How much of that is modern sort of almost pop culture and how much of it is kind of based on the original practices that have come down through the mists of time?
4: Yeah, those are those are perfectly authentic, uh, genuine ones. Ga- garlic was used for all sorts of reasons, I think just because it was an unusual kind of powerful thing as it used against witchcraft. The stake, uh, coming back to what Kate was saying, very much practical thing, pin it in its grave, keep it in its grave. But I think what's been forgotten about the staking, you had to use the right cup of wood, you had to try and, and I, I, you know, I haven't tried it myself, but I imagine it's quite difficult, um, you had to try and get the stake in in one blow. And if you did it twice, then um, it made things worse, allegedly. But uh, a forgotten one has been the um, quite a big one, I think, preventative staking. That actually, just to be on the safe side, because the dead seem to come back quite a lot sometimes, you put the stake in at first burial. In, in more recent cases, where it's become taboo to exhume and treat the dead as vampires in parts of Romania you might just do that as standard procedure so that you don't then have to suspiciously open up the grave and get into trouble with the authorities but those are actually only two of an absolutely bewildering myriad range of uh solutions the the big thing again I think we touched on this is be practical uh use what you've got to hand but be thorough if if it doesn't solve the problem and sometimes if the problem is pure terror then really this is psychosomatic so you you act you do something uh you take some drastic actions and the problem goes away because it was it was a matter of pure psychological terror but yeah you've got cases of people in central europe burning up to i think 11 corpses this is a lot of wood uh in a pre-industrial culture to expend and must have been quite a sight when they're all blazing away on the hillside there um You chop the head off. Uh, We've got a case of uh, a son chopping off their dead father's head uh, somewhere. A big one that Paul Barber first pulled out, which I think still isn't very well known, is that, uh, as Barber neatly put it, we don't know that vampires ever drank blood, but we have very persuasive evidence that people drank the blood of vampires. Uh, And they did uh, drink the blood of a vampire, burn the heart, uh, collect the ashes in water, drink that burn the heart, burn the body, uh, let the smoke pass over them, or exhale the smoke. I can pop Tate in my history of disgustives, making a very telltale face. Um, and yeah, people performed, uh, coming back to what Zach mentioned earlier, uh, forms of cannibalism or vampirism as a magical cure to rid themselves of vampires. A uh, few of my favorite among the, the uh, myriad types There were professional vampire hunters or killers who could, and I think this is a kind of pantomime of invisible drama going on, um, steal the vampire's clothes, make off with them up a ladder, have the vampire invisible, chase them up the ladder, and then just push him off uh, while they were at the top. You could bottle the vampire in Central Europe, um, and this involved tempting the vampire into a little bottle with some of its favourite food, which was, of course, excrement, uh, you popped in an icon, a little religious aid there in the bottle. once you've got it in, stop it up, threw it on the fire, job done. Uh, and then the vampire's intelligence actually being quite limited, again, not much like the great apocalyptic, cackling arch-villain of, of recent fiction. Uh, the vampire could be asked simply to go and mind a loaf of bread on somebody else's land and would faithfully do that like a sort of dog uh, and not go vamping about. Or they could be told to go and catch fish from the Danube uh, where they would fall in and drown so yeah a few of the of the great sample they could be brutally uh, practical and forceful uh, one that's interesting because it spans such a long time and so many different locales is simply you bury the corpse upside down so that if it wakes up decides to come and feed on you and visit you it will only dig itself further into the ground again it's not terribly clever. Uh, it would dig itself further into the ground. Now, this turned up in a case of murder uh, around Tinton Abbey, just on the english Welsh border here, uh, in the 19th century. But it also turned up in the First World War, one maybe for Zach here, where a couple of uh, British soldiers were seen by an officer taking the trouble to bury, and bury upside down, uh, a German soldier that had just been hit by uh, a British sniper, which is probably a bit of a risk on the, the World War One battlefields, but yeah, very practical, straightforward, doable solution again. I so. suppose.
3: I just I can't get past the um, the 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 burning and eating and drinking the blood and, and drinking the ashes, and my brain's still back there somewhere. Why yeah. would they? Why would they think that that would solve the problem? Uh, what? I
2: mean, the hypocrisy here, right? You know. But, yeah. well you <laughs> we can call assume. it you can call it justice
4: i suppose you call it poetic justice if they really believe it is drinking their blood and they certainly do believe it's feeding on them i think this is the the thing to remember is you know get past the blood which is happening sometimes but the feeding is crucial uh, another so they
3: treatment. eat it back and that possibly, makes it okay <laughs> possibly yeah
4: I mean, sometimes the logic <laughs> of magic is not very easy to fathom but it, it, i think it's a it does show you that people will stop at nothing. That is how terrified they are. And we should be clear here, I suppose, that when a vampire panic was going on, people did actually die of terror. And people can die of fear. Um, it's known as voodoo death. But it doesn't just happen in, you know, supposedly savage cultures. It happens all over the world. It happened in Victorian London. If someone thought they'd seen a ghost, it could literally be someone with a white sheet playing a prank this went into court because somebody played a prank and somebody died of it uh happened many many times and it happened with witches people were so terrified um so yeah it was it was serious enough to do something as disgusting as that and that was still going on incidentally the smoke inhaling at any rate in uh new england in uh, in the 19th late 19th century
3: wow that's crazy
2: i mean for people who are concerned about you know the vampire soul transferring to another organism this idea that you're just going to inhale the smoke coming off of uh, a funeral pyre just does seem to be a little bit counterintuitive doesn't it it's just incredible i'm also loving the fact that we've got kind of vampire hunters we're going to come on to versions of buffy the vampire slayer in just a second so setting aside this kind of slightly odd slightly hypocritical slightly illogical kind of thing that they're doing of inhaling seemingly other vampires as if that's not going to be a problem when they're concerned about you know the shifting of souls and all the rest of it let's let's move on from that the connection between vampires and sleep this is a curious one again you sort of alluded alluded to it earlier with this kind of sleep paralysis thing talk us through that whole Mm -hmm. vampire nightmare phenomenon
4: Yes. So as it felt to them, I suppose, you're lying in bed in your um, Serbian uh, mud hut in about 1800 and you've had a, a, a perfectly good sleep for a couple of hours. You wake up and you cannot move. And perhaps you've got someone next to you in the bed. But if you try to speak, you cannot speak either. And Presently, you become aware of some things always just kind of to the side of the vision, the corner of the eye. Uh, It might be a figure of a human. It might be the figure of a dog or a cat. But in either case, it's got a kind of aura of evil and terror about it that far exceeds any ordinary dog or cat or human. And actually, although we're in a Serbian mud village here, I'm taking some of these descriptions off a student of mine, an MA student just about 12 years ago, had this problem in childhood and the thing comes towards you slowly inexorably it gets onto the bed now it has weight and this is where we're back in the territory of revenants of things that are not airy ghosts and in fact of course the word nightmare which is the one used a lot of the time for this phenomenon uh, comes from uh, partly the word mar meaning to crush or bruise and bruises and marks were left on on victims and still were in in our own century and this is now on your chest. The problem here is that you cannot breathe properly. Uh, and the weight on the chest seems to be responsible for this. You perhaps know Fuseli's little demonic thing, solid little uh, goblin in the, in the painting. and. It seems to go on for tremendously long time. It's a kind of perfect storm of terror. I mean, no kind of director or writer could really have invented something so good because you've got an awful kind of terrible, heavy breathing in your ears. That sounds like nothing you've ever heard. Modern victims say that it takes them years to realise this is their own breathing as they get more and more terrified. Uh, But breathlessness, doctors assure us. um, is one of the most terrifying things there is, but there's certainly an aura of, of terror which is hard to get your head around until you start listening to modern victims of sleep paralysis. And I can give you my own experiences briefly, but first off, I think more memorably, uh, a guy called Alex Mag- Alexis, sorry Madrigal, working writing for the Atlantic magazine. Uh, he had a sleep paralysis attack in 2011, and he described himself as quite atheistical a straight materialist but he said the level of fear involved was not that it was trying to get at his life it was that it was trying to get at his soul and victims of this in the last few years repeatedly uh, internet postings and so on talk about something sucking the life out of them but life in kind of capitals uh, as if they were the soul the spirit force A Korean soldier, this is a a writer called Owen Davies, a terrific writer on The Supernatural, still working now, um, talks about a Korean soldier suffered uh, sleep paralysis. Now, he had been on the front line in the Korean War for 18 months, and he said never in all his life did he experience anything as terrifying as sleep paralysis. What's actually happening? Well, the medical version of this, the straightforward, calming kind of, thing we tend to believe in our culture now is that it's all very explicable um everybody is paralyzed every night to stop them acting out their dreams in the old days you're lying in your cave there you've got saber-toothed tigers talking about not a good idea to start making a lot of noise to attract attention to yourself or even as in modern times the case of Lord Longford who dreamed he was playing tennis with Martina Navratilova Um, saw a ball so hard that he had to hit it with his head and was woken up by his wife because he was banging his head on the furniture. Uh, Just don't act out your dreams. I I bought the medical rational explanations for a while, but I don't entirely anymore. One of the things that happened to me when I was first researching this book, and it was sometime before it was published, I'd been working on sleep patterns for a long time. I went off for a holiday uh, in a cottage, which actually pretty old place farmhouse in the Welsh coast was quite possibly actually haunted, but the first ever sleep paralysis attack I had, it was a figure, um, humanoid, I suppose. It looked like it was made out of television snow that used to get in the old days at the end of TV. And it was, it was a bit spooky. I couldn't move. I couldn't talk, but in my head being very rational about all this, I knew it down to the inch in rational terms, as far as I was concerned, I just swore at it. Um, and that did the trick. It went away. Um, a few months later, I had another um, sleep paralysis uh, attack, really frightening, and then a third one. So by the time the third one, I was I was pretty blase about this. And the detail here is quite important. I got both of my, um, sorry, I've got one arm under the blanket, sort of tucked in tightly, um, and I got the other dangling out over the edge of the bed. I woke up thinking, oh, God, it's sleep paralysis, and so you know, go away. God, I just lie here together, I can't say anything, can't do anything. Um, But certainly i got one arm absolutely clamped under the blankets, the other arm dangling. And here's where we kind of need visuals. But uh, I'll try and do this uh, for audio. As I was lying there, just thinking, yeah, yeah, get it over with. Suddenly from nowhere, a hand turned up and clamped smack around my wrist. And that really made me kind of sit up uh, and gave me a weird feeling of something thinking, well, you're not going to take this seriously. Watch, watch this uh and yeah there are there are some pretty powerful um sleep paralysis cases more terrifying and, and more convincingly real uh than that so it's a it's a very strange area where the medical meets the supernatural and i think actually yeah something really supernatural is probably going on in in some cases wow that's
3: um, yeah it's quite quite uh it's quite scary isn't it I guess it can be quite um quite frightening and you can certainly understand I mean now we've got um, a lot of medical explanations and so on so we kind of try to explain it away but yeah a few hundred years ago when you didn't have that it would have been absolutely terrifying. Um, It
4: it, it would have been um, you know the the perfect storm of terror and what was fascinating to me was that you're allegedly and I think there's probably some truth in this your cultural mindset shapes the demon that comes at you so the Uh, three biggest demons that took shape in these experiences were the witch, the vampire, and the alien abductor. Uh, But actually, in terms of being terrified, it was probably, I'm just trying to cast my mind back here, I'm teaching students of 20 about this in about 2014, Uh, so if you go back from there, we're talking the 1990s, Um, three of my students out of 12 had had this problem and one of them to the extent it traumatized her for I think months uh, during her teens it particularly afflicts people during their teens when you got enough to worry about anyway and we're talking here Britons, Americans, people in you know the most highly funded cutting-edge scientific medical culture in history but they've got absolutely no information Um, In some cases, they tell their parents, their parents tell them to shut up and stop talking rubbish. Um, They tell their doctor and the doctor refers them on to a psychiatrist. So it was actually across the period that I was researching this. Um, It was partly perhaps thanks to the work I was doing, but it just seemed to start spreading, I think, from grassroots, a lot of terrified teenagers on the internet. And presently, you've got documentary on it, you've got proper medical stuff when you look the terms up. But when I was first researching this, you're you're getting internet posts of kids who are terrified out their wits and, and are not really getting any help or getting less than than no help.
3: So you you mentioned um, about your kind of cultural um, origins shaping your own demons. Um, there are very different versions of vampires, aren't there? Um, so are they based according to? the preoccupations of the of the society that's kind of created them so to speak is that where they originate from
4: they they can be yeah there's a couple of examples here um zach rightly pointed out the dangers of looking a bit different and the scapegoating and uh in greece you had something called the living vampire and it takes you a while to get your head around these stories that initially look like pure folklore so you you get a case where A woman was widowed and a man came and he married her. And everyone thought at first he was normal, but he tended to go away on Saturday nights and disappear. And he tended to eat liver, which was very suspect, sign of a vampire. And presently they would examine him and they'd find something like he hadn't got any cartilage in his nostrils. They phrase it as he only had one nostril um, or anything else that was a bit odd looking. And hey, presto, this character could be burned to death, uh, quite literally, for seeming a bit different. And when you decode this, you realize that in a very, very insular culture, uh, very gossipy, very narrow, this man simply came from another village. Uh, he, He was strange because of that. And it could cost you your life. In Russia, they would talk sometimes about how the vampire had stolen someone's face, and this one really stumped me for a bit until I read into the context and the details of the problem. And you realise you're talking about mental illness. Um, They've got exactly the same face as they used to have, but their behaviour is so strange that they simply must have stolen this face. You've got some demon spirit in here uh, causing these these problems, and again, this could could cost you your life. I mean, Russia was a a place where you did not want to get out of your grave if you happened to have been buried alive. The the other very much contextual factor factor in New England was that uh, there was a crippling and cruel epidemic of consumption in uh, America, particularly on the cold, uh, windy Northeast coast. Um, And so in New England throughout the 19th century, you had the vampire used as scapegoat for the problem of consumption, which ironically, as Michael Bell has pointed out, makes you look slightly vampiric in our modern sense, daunt eaten away by disease. This was a, a world where a family could lose 12 people to consumption. You have big families, but they got hacked down. Now, the fascinating thing about consumption and vampires in New England is that and I refer you here to Michael Bell's book, Terrific Food for the Dead, uh, and gives you the the crucial idea of what's going on. The vampire, the consumptive, the first person in the family who died of consumption was not quite dead, and they were feeding on you from the grave. They were feeding on you from a distance. They did not need to leave the grave. uh, And you would go and check, were they really dead? Were they really decayed? All they needed to persuade them um, that, there was something living there was a tiny bit of blood in the heart the lungs what have you this was where they might be burned the smoke would pass over you be inhaled etc but yeah this was very much a scapegoat for an epidemic killer consumption and the second person got it of course because it was passed by germs but they didn't realize this and the first person was responsible And they would do pretty grim things. And it was quite a roller coaster going through Michael's book and associated research when you realised just how fiercely magical these people could be. Imagine a gathering on Woodstock Green uh, in New England in 1830. These people, they look like well-dressed, educated, upright Senators, um, in fact, the family who was the victim of this, one of their relatives was a U.S. Senator, Corwin. Um, So, yeah, you imagine some sort of Abraham Lincoln lookalikes standing around on Woodstock Green. They've just exhumed uh, a body. They've taken the heart out. They put it in a pot. They burn it to ashes. They bury it very deep. And when they've covered it over again, they sprinkle bullock's blood on the earth. Now, this is not the kind of stuff that modern American Republicans want taught in history. This messes with their idea that it is African-Americans who are the ones that practice the magic and do the dark, dangerous things down in Louisiana and New Orleans. Um, No, you know, this is the the Abraham Lincoln types uh, messing about with Bullock's blood and uh, burning the, the vampire's heart so yeah a couple of uh two or three versions there the other version again which you can see if you look at the book um is the poltergeist which is the strangest of all because it does actually seem to to exist
2: i'm still struggling to get o- oh, would we'll redo that because of feedback <clears throat> i'm still struggling to get over the vampiric nature of the supposed cures for vampirism if that's even a word but I want to tap into something that you said earlier which is about what I'm going to call vampire hunters because there were people who were kind of playing on this kind of thing so do we have many versions of a sort of old equivalent of Buffy the vampire slayer he says deliberately tongue-in-cheek but sort of running around early modern Europe do we have sort of Van Helsing type figures doing their thing
4: no, you, you don't. Um, the, the vampire hunting kits with which you're perhaps familiar would be uh, faked up for 20th century buyers in Portobello Market or similar places in America. Um, they've been examined and found to be, you know, not of the date they claim to be. And uh, They'd also be kind of hopelessly uh, inadequate you know I mean there's simply not enough wood in a vampire hunting kit to, to burn him out there isn't a spade to chop its head off and so on there was certainly I think and this is Owen Davies has again done great work on this kind of stuff there were cunning folk as uh, you might know of all over the world certainly in Britain well into the 20th century uh, who were respected for their knowledge of the occult um fairies, witches, vampires, what have you, so the kind of guy who's bottling your vampire for you, you want a professional to do that in in Europe, uh the guy who takes the vampire's clothes and runs up the ladder he's probably a a professional, but it's all very local and actually it's very ad hoc because these problems kind of spring up fast uh, I'll give you two vivid examples um One was a village called Sorovsky in Russia in eighteen ninety and it's winter, so it's damn cold of course in Russia. And probably what happened, um, my brother's friend was or is still actually an undertaker. And some years ago, he had a dead tramp in his um, office uh, sit up and start running around rather alarmingly because he'd just been comatose with cold. Now, a character is being buried, um, quite well respected chap, died of old age, seemingly in Saroski here. Uh, he's actually very cold. And it, as we said, he's not undead. He's simply not dead. Now, in some cases, when this happened, they were so terrified, they really managed to slam down the nails in the coffin and get you in there and shovel the earth on. That was your lot. That was the best way to go. The other way to go was this. The nails were wooden a lot of the time. So it wasn't actually that hard to get your coffin lid off. Uh, Then you would run out, as this poor man did, uh, half frozen, of course, in a shroud in the Russian winter, hurtle into a... Uh, house and try to warm yourself by the stove as luck would have it this chap hurls into the only house where they don't actually know about the funeral so they're not convinced that they're looking at one of the undead but everybody else is they're gathering in a great panic with guns and stakes uh, and they simply drag this poor man out, lay him down and stake him alive. Uh, They then leave him there till sunset, where at the appointed hour, he will be thrown into a bog. You think of your bog mummies that we know about, uh, probably met similar fates. And it it struck me that if you're looking at this, uh, we're wondering with absolute astonishment what these people are doing and exposing their children to the sight of all this. I started to think, well, actually, no, we've got it the wrong way around. You're a kid and you see somebody uh, treated like this. They must be really evil. They must be really dangerous. Uh, His body's there, staked for you to watch and wonder at until sunset comes around and chuck it in the in the bog. Um, So that wasn't such a good way to go. Then you've got the actually dead vampire. And here is a case which gives us sleep paralysis again as well. Uh, A man dies just before Christmas. And presently, his niece claims that he is coming back at night to her in bed and feeding on her heart. So this sense of your life being sucked out again rather than just your blood. uh, This is taken seriously enough that presently, after waiting an appropriate number of religious days after Christmas in the new year, they go to the man's called Petra Petra's grave. Uh, They open up the grave. They decide he isn't properly decayed. Uh, they break his ribs up, get his heart out, spike it on a pitchfork. And with this aloft, they stuff burning coals into the ventricles, uh, cause charred flakes of tissue, the heart, to to drop out into, a, I think, a towel. Pop that in, um, pop the ashes in some water, give it to the girl to drink. And this might be a case where your belief can kill you, but your belief can also save you because you've done the magic thing, which is pretty extreme, as we agreed. Uh, But these are extreme dangers, extreme measures. And yeah, this seems to work. This all went on, you'll be pleased to hear, in Transylvania, a place called Maratina de Sousse. And it happened across winter 2003 to four. And you might be pleased to hear also just after Stephanie Meyer had signed her contract
2: for Twilight. Okay, my gob just hit the floor. Um, wow. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Um, oh, <laughs> yeah. The,
3: the whole vampire thing has totally blown my mind, um, and I think Zach's as great. well. Great. Good. So, yeah, it'd be great to get you back and talk about ghosts wonderful. next time. Wonderful. No, it's
4: been a terrific hour. It's been wonderful. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much for coming on. And your books that have been released... I believe we'll be able to find them in the History Hack Books Bookshop, so uh, everyone can check them out there. And um, we look forward to talking ghosts very soon.
4: Okay, great stuff. Yeah, the early ghost ones are A Century of Supernatural Stories and A Century of Ghost Stories, so they're out there already.
3: Fantastic. Thank good, you. Good.
4: Thanks.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.